Hi, everyone, and welcome to How to College for First Gens, our podcast where we get together over some coffee and have real conversations about what it's like to be a first-generation student before, during, and after college. I am Luz, one of the podcast co-hosts and a first-generation student myself. This week, we are introducing you to our newly appointed board of directors. We are happy to have them on board and are excited for you, our listeners, to get to know them a little better, too. On today's episode, I'm happy to introduce y'all to Dr. Roland Smith. I first met Dr. Smith at Rice as a champion for underrepresented minorities who advocated for those groups and served as a role model as one of very few people of color serving in a senior administrative role at Rice. From being thrown in jail for student activism to being the first in his family to earn a master's and doctorate degree, Dr. Smith has a fascinating story. So without any further spoilers, let's get started. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't you first start by introducing yourself to our audience? Hi, Luce. Thank you for having me. I'm going to enjoy this, I'm sure. So I've been at Rice for 24 years. I came to Rice from the University of Notre Dame, where I was executive assistant to the president and been associate provost at that time. But when I first got to Rice, my focus was actually on outreach, educational outreach, and helping to recruit underrepresented students, first-gen students to Rice University, because there had not been that kind of focus before then. And so we created that program we called the Nominator Circle, which reached out to high school counselors to tell them about Rice and to help them to understand Rice as they look to identify students from underrepresented populations as well as first-gen students. Diving into the board of director role here for our podcast, we're definitely very excited to have you on, on our board, but want to get to know a little bit more about what ultimately convinced you to become a board member and what do you hope to accomplish as a board member for the podcast? I have to say that the fact that you were involved in people like Norma <laughs> and other alums that I knew as students, I was really fascinated and I had already had great respect for you. And then when you came to me with this idea, it sounded great. But I think it goes way, way beyond that because I started in higher education working with a program called Upward Bound. And it was designed to prepare students who were first generation college students from low income backgrounds and to prepare them for college. And I did that at the University of Notre Dame. And and so it, this harkened back to that time. It gave me a chance to get back into some of this area, these areas that are more pre-college as well as uh, working in the college level. So that uh, those are the reasons why I got involved and I, I made room for this. And I think that this is a great endeavor and I'm just glad to be a small part of it. We are very happy to have you on board, Dr. Smith. We definitely know you bring a wealth of knowledge when it comes to higher education and getting to college, some of the journey that, that people take in that course of going to college and getting through. So you touched on this a little bit, but we want to dig a little bit deeper here. So how does this align with your personal identity and your values? My father and mother were not college graduates. As a matter of fact, my father was a high school dropout. He dropped out of high school and joined the Army for World War II. My mom was a secretary in the government, and I grew up in Washington, D.C. And they talked about college a little bit, but they didn't know what that meant. And we did have a relative, a distant relative, who had gone to college. And they told me that they were saving money up for college and 
And when I did decide I was going, because that wasn't taken for granted, I wasn't sure what it was all about. And they told me that they'd saved this money for me. And I, when I went to college, the money that saved up, it took them years to save up, was gone after my freshman year. And I had to get a job. I had their support, but I wound up having to get a job to work my way through the rest of my undergraduate career. So when exactly was that decision made that you would go to college? So they would talk about it, but I, I, as a matter of fact, it was very last minute. I actually took the SAT at the last minute with no preparation because I didn't even know what, what it was. And, and they said, you just need to take this test. <laughs> and so I had no clue. I can't even remember what my score was. I don't think it was that great. But then I, I applied to a school. My uncle tried to get me to apply to a school and and I was late getting my application in. And so I told him that, well, I'll just wait a year and go and go apply again next year. And he says, no, no, you're going to school someplace. So he actually sat me down and, and made me write out an application and took me to the school, to Bowie State. And, and this was in June Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> of my senior year. And he got me a meeting with the president of the college. That's kind of impressive. And the, the college president <laughs> and said, you know, he, he, he kind of asked me some questions and he said, so I understand you want to come here. And I didn't, I hadn't even seen the school. And I, I said, well, yeah, out, out of reflex, I said, yeah. And so I got in. <laughs> It was uh, it was really bizarre. And uh, when I got there, the my freshman year, I I focused on studying, going to class, and eating. But, you know, just food. I didn't do any extracurricular activities that first semester. And when I got my grades, I got straight C's. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Oh no. I was like, I was working, and I and I realized that one of my problems was the lack of time management. I would call myself studying, but I had poor study habits. I didn't focus. And so I started getting involved in student activities, student government activities, and in clubs and things. And that second semester, they got better. And by the end of my sophomore year, I was on the dean's list because I was more organized. Yeah, I feel like that's such a common issue when people first get to college, that it's just the time management. is You're kind of on your own the first time. You figure out, like, when do you need a scheduled time to do homework, when you need a scheduled time to do some extra reading on your own. And I certainly struggle with that, too. Right. And as I said, I uh, had to get a job. So I wound up getting a job working at Washington Hospital Center in the Central Supply as a orthopedic attendant. I had to be trained to put, set up traction for people and working with orthopedic doctors. And that allowed me to, number one, get some money that summer. And then when I was going, when I went to go back to school in the fall, they really wanted to keep me. So they actually made a, an agreement with me so that I could work on weekends. So I worked on Saturday and Sunday, 12 hours each day, two 12-hour shifts, so that I could get enough hours in to be a permanent employee and get benefits. And then I could do it during the week. I could spend that time doing my re my studying and going to classes. I wouldn't have to go because it was a 17-mile commute from D.C. to Maryland, and there were no big highways back then. And so, yes, the job and being more involved in, in school, and I started to realize I needed to schedule all of my time. And once I did that, things started really to move uh, in a positive way for me. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Did you feel like you were a person? Like, did that identity ever come into play? Like, were you aware that you were a first-gen 
did that you know in any way influence your journey through college? First of all, the, the Bowie State was a historically black school, and and so as an African American, I felt I felt there were a number of people who were first generation college students there. So it wasn't that wasn't an issue for me. What was an issue for me was that whether or not I was prepared or not, because part of my story that I wanted to share today goes back to elementary school. Uh, I went to segregated schools up until 1957, but I I went into the sixth grade reading on the third grade level, and my teacher, who was an African American woman who lived about a block or two hundred blocks away from me, she was known as a very hard teacher. Some people called her mean. And I wound up in her class and she discovered that I needed glasses. And then when we got the glasses, she had me tested and talked to my parents and, and discovered that I had this learning disorder. And I didn't know what it was for years. And I found out later on that it was dyslexia. So she basically got my parents to put me in a reading clinic. I went to summer school and I had to repeat the sixth grade. And that saved my life. So part of my, in addition to being a first gen, was also being someone that had an invisible disability. I didn't think of it in those terms then. Yeah, that's so crazy. But somehow or another, I made it <laughs> and got three degrees out of it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm really glad that that sixth grade teacher of yours was on that lookout and was able to tell that that was the case because I, I feel like some teachers may be too overwhelmed that one student here, one student there that maybe has dyslexia or something. It, it, it's easy for them to overlook, especially now I feel like class sizes are so big that I, I can't even imagine what it's like to be a teacher and having to keep track of so many students. That's correct, yes. And, and I know for me, definitely, it was also teachers along the way that gave me that push that I needed to be where I am now. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely grateful for teachers out there and for all, all the teachers out there, if they're listening, we are definitely very grateful for you and all of the work that you do. Yes, I always tell people that I was so grateful to Mrs. Howard, my sixth grade teacher, that I married a teacher. My wife's a retired teacher. <laughs> yeah, and she really made a big difference. She saved my life, and I realized that, and I always mention her name to people. She's no longer with us. I went back to try to find her, and I found that she had passed away. So that was, that was a, she was very special to me, and I really I appreciate her. As a matter of fact, when I got to high school, I had another teacher who, I mean, not a teacher, a counselor. I had a counselor who tried to dissuade me from applying to college. I was in 11th grade. She said, you know, you know she had they had me taking print shop and some other shop things, and I was trying to take college prep classes, and, and she really um, discouraged me. She said that, you know, I would be frustrating. It would be frustrating and I wouldn't be successful. But because of Mrs. Howard, I had enough self-esteem in my parents that I didn't pay attention to that counselor. I went ahead and applied to college anyway. And I guess that's probably one of the things that helped ignite me to apply because she said I couldn't, you know, so it's... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times in those situations, depending on how much self-esteem you have already, that could either like break you or make you because if if somebody tells you like the counselor who's supposed to be the person guiding you tells you that that's not for you, then yeah, I feel like a lot of students definitely take that too hard. And it's just really sad to hear how often that's the case. I've heard that from multiple students that their counselor just like wasn't involved, didn't think that they could do a whole lot. So just never gave them that time or that opportunity which is so unfortunate. Right. And, and I'll have to say in, in the defense of counselors, uh, uh, when I worked 
with Upward Bound, I discovered that many counselors had such a huge caseload of a load of students that they had to address it. They wound up basically, you know, working with the top students and all the, the students who were in trouble. So the students in the middle didn't get the attention. It was basically because they just didn't have the resources. The, the counselors were overworked. Kind of goes back to like the, the teachers also being overworked and just the education system in general needs a little more work. Definitely. Backtracking a little bit. So when you were going through college, just your undergrad, did you kind of know what you wanted to do after you finished your, your degree? No way. <laughs> or how did you end up in Annapolis Bound? Like, how did that come about? So when, when I entered college, I really wasn't sure. I, I defaulted to elementary education as a major, and I took my first education course, Foundations of Education course, and thought, this is not for me. In addition, I actually had a chance to substitute at the local elementary school. And I said, this is not what I want to do. I'm not sure if I'm made up for this. And at the same time, they had these new majors, anthropology and sociology. And I took an anthropology course and a sociology course and basically fell in love with that. I said, this is what I want to do. But I still didn't know what I was doing with it, right? I just I just like these topics. And I was also, by this time, active in student government. I was a, a representative for my organization. And then I wound up being elected vice president at the end of my sophomore year. But by this time, I was starting to become interested in political science. So I was all over the place. <laughs> Trying a little bit of everything. Because I was really interested in student activism. And so, yeah, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I think as I went through my junior year, I was distracted by the fact that we were, it was in 1967, 68, we had a lot of student unrest going on on campuses. And we had our campus, which was a historically black school where the, the governor at the time, Spiro Agnew, was trying to take money away from the school. And we were actually feeling we should have been getting more money. And we wound up going down to the state house to deliver some grievances. And after going back and forth with several times and he wound up having us arrested. And I think I've told you this story, right? He uh, had us arrested. And while we were in the riot cells, that's when I heard that Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And it really affected me deeply. Uh, I had this sense of rage that jerked through my body that I really wanted. It was the first time that I really wanted to hurt someone. And it scared me that I felt that way because that's not who I am. And so I started to think about what I would do. And I started thinking, thinking about a little bit about law. So I wound up actually going to law school for a year and, and hated it because I was interested in, I, I, cho I actually chose the wrong school because I was interested in legislative law, public affairs. And I want the school I went to at Notre Dame was actually more corporate law oriented. But I, I decided that this was not for me. But at the same time, I got a call from one of the state senators who had recommended me. He, he befriended me while I was working in the state legislature because the after Agnew had left to become vice president for Nixon, the new governor actually fixed our budget. He actually restored our budget. So I once spent some time down at the state legislature lobbying for support for the schools, for the historically black schools in Maryland. And that, that allowed me to to meet some other people. And so I got recommended to be an intern researcher in the United States Senate. So I did that. And I never went back to law school. And that's when I, I left there and I went to work in the government in South Bend in the mayor's office. 
this was all after you had graduated from college, though, right? That's right. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of this. I was fan. I'm, I'm all over the place, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, so I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, and I wound up working for the mayor. And then I started, that's when I got involved with uh, the, um, I got admitted to the program at Indiana University in Public and Environmental Affairs. But I was still more interested in somehow in education. I just couldn't figure out how I would make that happen. And so all of these experiences just kind of along the way, I was kind of evaluating what, what was going to happen. And so when I when I had an offer from Notre Dame to, to work in the Upward Bound program, I decided that's what I wanted to do. So I, I did that. And that's how I got on the track of working in higher education. And how long did you do Upward Bound? I actually did Upward Bound for, for 10 years, three years as assistant director and seven years as director. And that, that I learned, and one of my former students, my wife had him as a third grader and I got him in Upward Bound and he came from a, he was a first gen student and he was living with his grandmother. He, his family life was, you know, not the best. And uh, we got him, I got him into Upward Bound and, and he had a, a similar situation that I had. He was trying to get into college and uh, his high school counselor wouldn't write a letter of recommendation for him. Because she said that by going to this private all-male elite school that he would not fit in. And when they went to, on spring break, when they went to Florida, he couldn't go. And so he asked me if I would write the letter of recommendation. And I did. And he got into the school. And that next spring, he sent her a, a postcard from Florida. So he did go to Florida, but he was on the track team. So that's how he got to go to Florida. <laughs> uh, that's cool. Your wife seeing him in third grade and then you see him come back around. That's right. And then, <laughs> and so we've been in touch with him over the years. He became a city councilman, who became a state senator in Indiana, and now he's an executive with AT&T. And he actually came to my, when my wife and I celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary, he came to it. He traveled to anniversary and, and he basically said some really supportive and, and inspiring words that how we helped him. And we didn't know how much we meant to him. That's so sweet. I think that's often what drives, I think, a lot of us on this team to give back. We've seen others do that for us and how much of an impact it's made. And that's why we want to try to do it for others coming up behind us. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a full subscriber to that because I feel like I've gotten a lot of help along the way. And that's why that's another reason why I'm doing uh, the things that I'm doing now, including, you know, how to college. So what kind of drove you to, after you know going to college and everything, what drove you to then go to grad school and get even more degrees? This is another story where actually I learned from my students. So as I mentioned to you, I was running Upward Bound. Actually, I worked for Upward Bound, then I, I was hired to be director, and then I created the Center for Educational Opportunity. And I was also getting my master's because I knew I needed to have a graduate degree to run that center. So I finished a, a master's degree uh, at Indiana University in, in Public and Environmental Affairs. That was while you were doing Upward Bound? Well, I finished it. I started it before Upward Bound and then finished it before I, just before I was named director. Okay. So I was working full time and re finishing up master's. <laughs> So I really was thinking about a doctorate, but I felt like it was a pretty big stretch. And I had a friend of mine who was running an upward bound program at another institution. We were both talking about getting our doctorates. And he finally, he went ahead and got accepted to Harvard. 
uh, the Graduate School of Education there. And I asked him, I saw him, and after his first, during his first year, I said, George, what do you, how do you like it there? And he says, Roland, I'll tell you one thing, you should be there. And I said, George, I won't get into Harvard. They'll laugh at my application. You know, I was putting myself down. And then he got me on the mailing list. I filled out the application. I started filling out the application and I stopped. And I said, you know what? I'm doing, I'm wasting my time. I'm not going to get in. And besides, I don't want to abandon my upward bound students. And then that next summer, I found myself fussing with the rising seniors in upward bound for not applying to schools I thought they should apply to. That's so funny. And I told them, you don't get in school by not applying. You let the school decide. You apply and let the school decide. And at that moment, you know, it hit me right between the eyes that I needed to practice what I was preaching to my students. And so that next year, just to prove a point, I applied to Harvard. <laughs> and lo and behold, I got in. <laughs> so that's that story. So I, and then when I struggled about, and by this time I was married with two kids and had a, a child that had medical issues. And I'm thinking, how am I going to make this happen? Moving from Indiana to Cambridge. So I talked to a friend of mine who was an administrator. And he said, he was actually a vice provost. And I said, what do I need to do to, to, uh, to, how much notice do I need to resign my appointment if I go to Harvard? He said, what do you mean if you go? I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I can make it happen. And he says, no, no, if you get into Harvard, you go. He says, we'll give you a, a leave of absence from your job at, at Notre Dame so you can go get your coursework. So I did that and we made arrangements. We sold, we rented our house out. My wife got a leave of absence from her teaching job in Indiana and we moved to, to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then that's how I got started there. And at the end, when I came back, part of my dissertation was written and the vice president that approved my leave was named president of Notre Dame. And he kept after me to finish my dissertation. And, and three weeks after I finished it, he appointed me his executive assistant. So I was the first, I don't know if I was the first first gen, but I was certainly the first minority in the president's office in Notre Dame. So it actually, I owe my Upward Bound students for pushing me. So teachers can learn, counselors can learn from their students. Yeah, that's true. So let me see if I got your timeline right. So after Upward Bound, that's when you went to Harvard. So when I came back to Harvard, I came back to running Upward Bound again. I was actually running Upward Bound in two other programs. So I ran a center and then I did that for two years and then I was promoted to the president's office. But what I did was I negotiated that the program still reported to me even though I was in the president's office because I didn't want to have those programs get lost. So how did you ultimately end up a rife after Notre Dame? I was actually minding my business in Notre Dame. I got a call from the search committee chair at Rice, and I didn't know much about Rice. I knew it was a good school, a small school in Texas, but I didn't know much about it. And the search committee chair, who was a professor, he said, you've been highly recommended. We'd like for you to consider applying to Rice for this new position of associate provost. And I was puzzled because I said, I don't know any, I don't know who would have nominated me for that. I didn't know. I couldn't figure out who it was. As it turned out, it was one of my classmates at Harvard who was on the faculty at Rice who nominated me without telling me. <laughs> wow. And so I filled out the application and, and then they wound up calling me for an interview. And then they called me for a second interview and then offered me the job. Kind of shows like the power of networking. <laughs> it does. It really does. Networking is so powerful. It's working with people, not asking for something, but contributing. Because president at Notre Dame, I helped him on a committee before he actually moved into administration. So he knew me as he was moving up. So I know you have a, a bunch of different roles at Rice, Dr. Smith. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about the different roles? Because I know you're the social provost. You do stuff with the Department of Sociology. And anytime I ever look up your bio on the Rice website, there's there's so many things listed. Yes, and that's what it's been hard for me to answer that question because <laughs> there's so many things. I guess I'm a jack of all trades. <laughs> yeah. Well, I teach sociology. I teach ethnographic research methods, which is a qualitative research method course to help people understand how they make sense of their lives. So we do research doing interviews and observations, and I teach students how to do that. And I'm also on what's called the Institutional Review Board. And that is a board that helps guide and monitor any research done on human subjects. And so that's to protect people who are the subjects of research to make sure that there's no harm being done to them or that they have full knowledge of what they do. I am also on the Graduate Council. We help to identify programs for graduate schools. And I oversee the Multicultural Center, which is one of my newest roles. So how have you seen the university change over time to become more inclusive? Well, when I came to Rice in 1996, I was the first minority or black senior administrator at Rice and wasn't very diverse. It was pretty small. And one of the reasons that I came to Rice was to help move it forward. And so I've seen a lot of change. I know that we've got a lot of work to do, but I've seen a lot of changes come along during those times, during those years. Yeah, I feel like even in the recent time, as a Rice alum, when I get newsletters from the university about all these new programs, I'm always like, wow, like I can't believe they're doing this and that. And I wish this was there when I was there and things like that. So it's nice to see that there's initiatives being done to continually become more inclusive. Yes, it's, it's actually one of the reasons why I've stayed at Rice so long, because I've seen the changes that come along with the hard work that many people are putting in to make Rice a better place, students, staff, faculty and alums. Do you know if there's been any specific initiatives that have been done to reach out to the first-gen population? Well, yes. We have an office now of student success, which is actually focused on that. That office has come in a few years ago, and it is to help students who are first-gen and come from backgrounds where college is not prevalent in their backgrounds. And so it's really to help them make those adjustments. That's one of the key programs. We've had some bridge programs started in the summer to help students to prepare for the fall. And it's uh, they get invitations to come and they can try to uh, become acclimated before the small fall semester starts. Those are just two of the things that I could think of right now. I think I've heard of, of both of those recently. I think the program where they come in the summer started maybe just after I graduated. Because I remember going back and talking to a current Rice student like the year after I graduated. And they were going to help advise with it. And I was like, wow, that's a really good idea. I wish I had that so it wasn't so hard, especially with some of the STEM classes right off the bat. Right. So I know you mentioned you've seen all this change gradually coming about. So what do you hope to see the university head as we go into the new year, as with maybe new initiatives coming down the pipeline? Like what else do you hope to see happen at Rice and maybe just in general in higher education? Well, I think that for Rice, we're in a, on a good track to continue to grow in our diversity on all levels in many ways. To me, that actually adds to our strength because you have an environment where people can learn from each other, come from different backgrounds, having different experiences. And I think that is one of the things that I'm looking forward to. I've seen our growth, but I also know that with some initiatives like the 
new position of vice provost for diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is really encompassing. So that's going to help move us forward. I think you've heard that there's going to be a new student center built, and that's going to be really interactive and include a lot of different things that will help us to have spaces to do the creative things that we want to look forward to. And did you ever see maybe like a little bit of pushback or a little bit of resistance to getting some of these programs off the ground? Well, yes. I think that there are a number of reasons for that. One is there are people who feel that, well, we've got a good thing going there. You know, we could move things, but then we could move things slowly or gradually. And then there are those who are pushing. And so you have this tension between those two things. Higher education in general is always slow to change. And so it takes people who are inside kind of pushing, but it also takes alumni to help push from the outside. And then those two things together will help institutions develop and grow and expand. Yeah, I think that's a really good note. I think sometimes as alumni, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of this. I forget to reach back to see how RISE is doing and to make sure that they are continually doing these kind of programs to help out the current students. Sometimes you just move on to the next thing and then things can get kind of crazy. No, that's true. And we recognize that. There are times when when people graduate right after that time, they are busy moving on to the next stage of their careers. But we still have opportunities for them to reach back and to kind of share how they benefited from their rice experience and perhaps provide us ways to improve. And then as they go along, we've had a number of our new initiatives, whether they be buildings or facilities or programs that are created through donations. Many of those alums who've gone on and done really marvelous things have made a commitment to give back to the university. So you'll have your turn when you get to be rich and famous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I hope this serves as a a little bit of a call to action to other alumni out there for (laughs) not just life, but all schools to keep track of of what their schools are doing and making sure that they are bringing about the changes that we wish to see for, for the future generations. What were some of the challenges that you faced both personally and professionally as you were going up your path? Well, I have to say that one of my constant companions all through this process was the imposter syndrome. I always, in the back of my head, felt like, am I am I good enough? Are they going to find out that I'm a fraud? <laughs> <laughs> I think we all know that all too well. Yes. So, I mean, I think that that is one of the things. And the other is, as I got married and had a family and I had to deal with a situation with one of my children having severe medical problems, starting with being age two, and that had to be a part of any move that we had to make. Anything we did, we had to think about that. And without going into a whole lot of detail, but we were able to figure out how to help her get medical care while I was in college, when I went to get my doctorate. And one of the reasons why Rice was able to get me was the medical center in Houston. They told me that, oh, we've got this medical center right across the street. And she was able to get a kidney pancreas transplant, which actually extended her life way beyond what the doctors originally had thought. I'm glad to hear that. Yes. She was 43 when she passed away. Her heart just gave out, but she was very strong. So any professional move I had to make, I had to think about, you know, family 
Right. And that, that's always an important part of making any decisions about school. But one of the things we said was we weren't going to let, and she was a believer of this as well, we're not going to let this control us. We're going to basically do what we have to do to keep moving and to live our lives and not be controlled by the circumstances. So I think you touched on this a little bit already, but so as you were going through this whole process, I know you said in, in college, the first gen identity wasn't on your radar. Yeah, it was, but because there were some students students whose parents were college graduates. But I think that it was embedded. It wasn't fully there, but yeah. And then when we would do things with other colleges, that's when it kind of hit. Uh, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like navigating the system? I mean, you said it yourself, like there were riots going on, that this was the time when Martin Luther King was assassinated. What was it like going through this whole process as both a first gen and an African-American man? It was stressful on many levels, but I think the fact that I had my family was close. I mean, my parents and I had extended family that were in the D.C. area, and it just kind of helped me that way. But I have to say that once I started to become a student activist, I really got firsthand knowledge or more firsthand knowledge of some of the issues that we still face today because I used to get stopped by the police, the Maryland police, all the time. Oh, man. I got stopped so many times, I lost count. I didn't get tickets or anything. I didn't get arrested. It was just they would stop me and check my car and check my ID. And I think at first I wasn't sure whether it was... They did it before, but I think after I was kind of known in the Maryland area as a student activist, that's when they started stopping me all the time. So I lost count after like 20 something. I mean, I literally just, uh, yeah. And so it did get, it did kind of weighed on me and. Yeah. So what kept you going? I guess part of it was knowing that I had to do this because I think that even though I had an uncle who went to college, I was the first person in my entire family in my generation that went to college. So I, one of the things that I had to deal with was there was one part of the family, the elders were supporting me, but my cousins, my kind of peers, my generational peers were seeing me in a different light and didn't understand why I was spending time studying when I came home from school rather than work going out and hanging out with them. And so that's that's the other side of the first gen. That is, you. there's a sense of being separated from those family members who don't understand what college is all about. Yeah, I definitely know that pretty well. <laughs> and then they would think, oh, you're too good for us now because you you're in college. So, yeah. So I felt it that way. So what about when you left D.C. for Notre Dame or for Harvard? Like you didn't have your family close as your support group. What were your other means of support system? So one of the things I learned in sociology was the idea of what's called fictive kinship. So what happens, one of the things I realized was we were studying some things in my undergrad about social networking and family structures, and that families can be not only just nuclear, but extended and then fictive. That is that people who, you know, you might call aunt or uncle who are not really relatives. And so one of the things my wife and I did when we moved there, we actually were able to connect with families there who kind of adopted us. So we developed that through people we worked with, and then they wound up joining a church. There are those things that helped us. So we had families adopt us in an in, informal way, and that helped us a lot. I think that's one of the biggest lessons for those students that end up leaving home for college, that you really need to find some sort of group of people or support system that can get you through those tough times. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would have survived had it 
you know, because I'm very close to my family. And I think that that's really important because when my wife and I, before even before the kids came, but even after our children came, we would spend every Thanksgiving and Christmas in Washington, D.C. with family. We would drive that drive. Couldn't afford airplanes. (laughs) (laughs) We would drive from Indiana to D.C. and Maryland, where my wife is from Maryland. So right outside of D.C., we would would do that all the time. And we would go there in the summer as well. So we, we did all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, my sisters and I today still, we still vacation together. And they're younger than I am. So I'm the oldest of three. I have two younger sisters and the younger sister, I we were having a conversation about education and why we were different from the rest of our cousins, for most of them, many of them, not all of them. One of the youngest ones said, we have more degrees among the three of us than there are in our whole family. Oh, my God. So because my middle sister went on to get her undergrad at uh, Georgetown, her master's at Temple University, and her doctorate at University of Maryland. And she's now an an associate dean at um, Morgan State University in Maryland. Wow. So she was saying, well, you went to college, so I had to go. And so that's what the younger was said, the same thing. She has an MBA. She went to University of Virginia and Northwestern to get her MBA. So she and her husband have their own business. That's funny. It's interesting how in your immediate family, all your siblings feel that pressure that because you went, they have to go. But it doesn't always translate to the extended family, to like the cousins. Right. I think in some families it does. Maybe it depends on like how close everybody is. But I saw it in my family too, where the cousins that I spent the most time with were like, yeah, it sounds like that's a good idea. Maybe I should think about it. But like the rest of them, they're like, oh yeah, you're too good for us. So they didn't really follow in those footsteps. So it's interesting to see that that, some of that also happened in your case. Mm -hmm. And so now we see more of our relatives so that the, uh, those coming behind us are doing it. Of course, there's more opportunities for them as well. Yeah. So we see that. And so my daughter actually, even though she was ill, she had to drop out of school twice and she went back and she was doing dialysis in her dorm room and she graduated from college. Oh, wow. Very impressive. And my son graduated from college and got it. He just got his MBA. He's married with four kids now. So he was telling us how he was, it was assumed that he was going to college, even though we didn't really talk about it, but he felt that pressure. <laughs> I've had this conversation with other parents, too, where the, when they're the first ones to go to college, it's sometimes, you know, they end up going to college on a whim. But like for their children, it's, it's always automatically like that's what they're going to do, like even if, if it's not specifically talked about. And, and even like the grandparents of those children, like automatically also think that they're going to go, even if their own children, it wasn't always the case. So that's, it's interesting how like within a generation, how much it can share. That's right. That's exactly right. So what do you feel have been some of your greatest accomplishments? I guess in many respects, just what we were talking about, the fact that I was the first in my family to get a master's and a doctorate. So that actually helped influence others in moving forward. That's one of them anyway. That's a big accomplishment, I would say. And I think I almost have to break this down in segments because I think that being a father (laughs) is really important to me. A husband. And so so those things were very important to me. The first is from educational, for personal. And then for my career, I think there are two things. One was, again, find myself being elevated to the work at the president's office as executive assistant to the president and being a part of that officer group at Notre Dame and being the first black and the first non-Catholic to be in that role. And then to come to Rice and to be the first black senior administrator uh, when I first got here. And now there are a number of other administrators who are from underrepresented populations that are in the last few years. So 
I'm really happy about that progress. Yeah, I'm really glad you've helped pave that road for the others. Yes. I know you've offered a couple little nuggets here and there of useful advice, but what what is some more general advice that you would offer other first-generation students about college and, and life in general? I just wanted, to, in, in a way of highlighting uh, some of the key people in my life, and I mentioned that Mrs. Howard, who was my fifth, sixth grade teacher, and I think from her, I learned to look for potential in students and others where it may not be apparent, because sometimes, you know, you don't know it. You don't, you don't advertise potential, right? And so... Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that that's one of the things I I learned from her, from the president of Bowie State, because he and I were kind of at odds, as you might imagine, the student body president and the president. But he actually mentored me, and he taught me the the importance of teachable moments in the midst of chaos and conflict. And so we can learn in those spaces. And I think that from Dr. Martin Luther King's life, um, and let me just pause here and say that later on, I had uh, the honor of being appointed to the Martin Luther King Federal Holiday Commission that Congress had, and Mrs. King was chair of that. So I got a chance to work with her. Oh, wow. That's so amazing. And so from Dr. King, I learned that the role of commitment to the greater good. And and to me, that's really a powerful lesson to understand is if the world is not just around you, that we are working for the greater good. And if we do that, then, you know, that that could be our among our greatest accomplishments. I feel like that's really relevant right now during this pandemic. Yeah, it really is. So that may not have answered your question, but I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> I think that's a very useful lesson. Very well said. Well, I I think that's all I have for you today, Dr. Smith. I wanted to thank you for doing this. I think this is a great thing. I'm really excited about being a part of the board for How to College and, and look forward to great things. Well, thank you, Dr. Smith. And thank you for joining us today for this special episode for the board of directors at I definitely learned a lot from your story and hope our listeners out there also take some of those key takeaways that you mentioned and and implement it in their own lives to help them out. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As you heard from Dr. Smith, sometimes life throws you curveballs. From finding out you have a learning disability like dyslexia to being thrown in jail for advocating for student rights, Life gives you lessons among the chaos. Dr. Smith truly has a fascinating story. With every step of the way, he has learned to reevaluate and learn from others, as well as help pave the way for future generations. We at How to College First Gen are excited to have someone with lots of wisdom and life lessons to share, join our team, and keep helping us democratize knowledge and information for fellow First Gens. For more information about our board or to subscribe to our newsletter, check out our website at howtocollegefirstgen.org. If you prefer to reach us on social media to share with us your experience as a first gen, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Remember, you are not alone in this journey. Until next time.